it's $12 milkshakes, it's $20 tacos, it's $4,000 lofts, it's Trader Joe's, Target, Whole Foods. What is the relationship between gentrifying white people and curtainless windows? <laughs> they feel safe. It's like they're making gentrification documentaries and they want us to witness what they're able to do, what they're able to afford. And they want everyone else on the street to be able to see it. Well, you know, you speak to what was happening in your era. Like people had to close their things. They didn't want to have people see inside the good shit that they got. Right. Because they'll get robbed. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and now these folks just feel safe. This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Welcome back, everyone, to season two. What it do? Thought you knew I freestyle too. Of Stuck with Damon Young. I'm your host, everyone's second favorite Pittsburgh nigga, Damon Young. So much happening, so much to get to, and I'm I'm so excited that you're here with me. So excited, actually, that this will be the most excited you'll ever hear me. <laughs> Don't get used to all this fucking energy. And this season we'll be kicking it again with some of my favorite writers, comedians, academics, actors, activists, journalists, TV showrunners, and even niggas from Detroit to help me, to help you, to help us understand and unpack the world around us. Since it's the week after the Rihanna concert at the Super Bowl, I'm going to talk to the homie Malcolm Lee, director of The Best Man, Girls Trip, about the game. And then we'll switch to the Brooklyn Nets, gentrification in Brooklyn, and in Pittsburgh, and then we'll get real vulnerable about the relationship between black art and mainstream critical validation. Also, we're doing something new, a segment where a guest and I answer a listener-submitted question. And today, just in times for Valentine's Day week, the multi-multi-multi-multi-hyphenate Elaine Walteroff joins me to answer a love letter. All right, y'all, let's get it. Malcolm, what's good? What up, brother? How you doing? I'm well. Post Super Bowl, I was born on a Super Bowl Sunday. Oh, word. I don't know if it's, it's fun fact. Fun fact. It was what? And Kansas City was playing. In fact, okay. Yes. Okay. I, you know, what? I was born during the, I think, an AFC Championship game, and I, and I remember my dad um, telling me that he told like the doctors, like kind of kind of to hurry up my birth. So that he could, he could get back to, to what's really important. <laughs> well, my father was in front of the television. He wasn't at the hospital. He okay. got a phone call that I was born. Right. So things were just different back in the day. Yeah. So, you know, getting back to the Super Bowl. And, you know, I didn't really have a rooting interest between the Chiefs and the Phillies. You know, people presume I'm from Pittsburgh. You know, I root for the Eagles. Uh, but, you know, it's, a, you know, we're six hours away from that. There's really no connection between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. So my rooting interest, you know, usually when I don't have a rooting interest like that is who has a black quarterback. Mm-hmm. But then we have two teams, Jalen Hurts, Patrick Mahomes, two black quarterbacks. And so my rooting interest last night, and I'm, I'm going to keep it a buck. Jalen Hurts is too handsome. <laughs> right. And I was like, you know what? He's been given enough by God already. So I'm gonna just I, I go. <laughs> I'm, gonna just, I'm gonna just. I'm gonna just go with Mahomes and the Chiefs. You know, I, and again, it wasn't. You know, I, it wasn't like a, a sincere, serious route. But it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, this nigga's been given enough already. I understand that. You know, what I mean, he could host Soul Train or 
star and like some CSI <laughs> offshoot if this NFL thing doesn't work out for him. You know what I mean? I so. think it will work out for him. He played a hell of a game last night. He did. He did. You know, what's great about the fact that there's two black quarterbacks is that you don't have to root for the black quarterback now. You just root mm-hmm. for the team, yeah. you know? And so I think that's what we've all, all been looking for and equity and everything else. And like, you know, it's like, there's no reason why a Giants fan should be rooting for Philadelphia, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's just, that doesn't compute. Unless it's like, well, you know, NFC East loyalty, yada, yada. Philly fans hate New York. New York, generally speaking, hates Philly fans. I don't, I'm kind of like, whatever, you know, like they're, 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 they're both very intense fan bases. Mm-hmm. Um, Philly's a little bit more intense, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't, I didn't have a rooting interest in the game either. I just want to see a good game. And it was a great game. It was a great um, game. Yeah. It was a great game. So, like, you know, hats off to uh, Patrick Mahomes. So, did you uh, watch the, you know, Rihanna's performance at halftime? I did. You did. Okay. I did. Yeah, yeah. And I was with, uh, you know, some people who were much more interested in that than they were in the game. Yeah. Same. You know, my wife and, you know, her friends. And it was just like, you know, like I was, I was, I, you know, I love Rihanna. I think she's great. You know, I thought she did a great job. We were like, well, who's she going to bring out? Who's she going to bring out? Who's the special guest? Is Drake coming? Is Jay Z coming? No, 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 nobody showed up. We know her. Her special guest was her baby, exactly. <laughs> right? That, that was her. Exactly. That was her special guest, and you know, and there, you know, inevitably, there's this inevitable comparison between Beyonce and Rihanna, and I, yep. I, I, pre- I appreciate them both for two different reasons. Beyonce is the king of doing the most, mm-hmm. right? Like she, you know, her productions, her instrumentations, her like everything. It's just you know, Beyonce. That's that's her. That's her thing. Yeah. And Rihanna is going to give you the least, <laughs> right? You know Why do you I mean? say that? Even the performance, it's like, you know, I'm going to give you these hits. I'm going to give you like some hand twerking and I'm going to give you this baby, right? And y'all are going to take it. By the way, I wasn't <laughs> mad at her. Like, you know. And, I'm, I, and again, I, I'm not mad at her either. But I, again, I don't know how I characterize that it is, that way. It, it is quintess- it, that was a quintessentially Rihanna performance. Okay. <laughs> I don't even like think about it, you know, in those sort of, it's funny. It's just, I was, I was, we were talking about the, 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 the kind of origin of the, the halftime Super Bowl show. And it was, you know, if, if you recall, it was in living color back in the day that was like the, the halftime to go to at Fox, um, you know, before, yeah. but, you know, mm-hmm. it, before that it was like, you know, like marching bands and all kinds of things. The following mm-hmm. year, they you know like because because it, it was so popular. Even the second half of the game wasn't you know as widely televised or w- widely mm-hmm. watched. So now they got like you know so now it's always like about okay, try to, how do we keep elevating this or like top of what we did before? And so you're um also you know just shift gears a bit. You are going to go to the All Star Game to the NBA All Star Game. I am going to go to Utah. You're going to go to Utah. You know, you're you know, if you stay behind an extra day or two after the All Star weekend's over, you're going to double the black population in right. that state. Um, thinking of the NBA, thinking of All Star weekend, you know, I can't help but think about what's happening in Brooklyn right now <laughs> with the Nets. And mm. Mm. yeah, I mean, what what is your take on just that whole situation? What is going on with the Brooklyn Nets right now? I have to say. When they first got KD and Kyrie, it was exciting. I thought the team that was there already with D'Angelo and Karis LeVert and the big man there. and Oh, Jared Allen. Thank you, Jared Allen. You know, uh, the fro, right? And, and I thought mm-hmm. it was a good team. But then bringing on, you know, KD and Kyrie and letting D'Angelo go to Golden State, like, I'm like you know what? That's a good team. Like, that, that you, you got some good role players and you got two alpha dog stars. Mm-hmm. And then they got greedy. Like, you know, you make Steve Nash the coach who never coached, never even had any coaching aspirations as far as anyone of mm-hmm. us knew. Why does he get that job, number one? And they talk about, oh, we're all going to be coaches. What? Come on. That's stupid. And so then you get greedy and want to trade away the entire team to get James Harden. And they were never on the court at the same time. Now, I will say, if Kyrie doesn't go down in the playoffs against the Bucks. They probably win that series. They win a championship. And probably win the championship. They win the championship that year. Probably. You know, you listen, the pandemic was hard for everybody. Kyrie didn't want to take the vaccination, da-da-da-da. Okay, your own beliefs, I get it. But it's been a problem, man. Like, that's like, the, for now, that they fo- forced the trade. 
I don't like this new, like, I'm unhappy, I'm out of here, right? Like, it's it's rampant. I feel like people should have autonomy, right? I think the players should have the right to make the best decision for themselves and their team, mm-hmm. right? And the situation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so the players should have some empowerment. But you should honor your agreement, right? And make the most of it, in my opinion. Yeah. So just thinking about the Nets and thinking about Brooklyn. Yeah. The only time that we, you know, met face to face, we met up at the Barclays Center for the NBA draft in 2019. Mm-hmm. And I remember me and you were hanging out. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a funny story, too, because Spike Lee, your cousin, was there. And he, you introduced me to him. And I had, like, this whole preamble plan. Like, you know, Spike, I'm a big fan of, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He got gay, Malcolm X, whatever. And this nigga was so focused on the draft. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and no, paid me no mouth. And again, I get it. He was he was focused. He was focused on who the Knicks were going to draft. This was a Zion, RJ Barrett. Yes. All those guys Oy. draft. But it was just, I had this big thing planned. John Morant. Was Morant that year? Yes, John Morant was number two. Right, right, right. Ja was that year too. That's right. right. Yeah. Zion, Ja, and then we got RJ. Right. Wow. But I was thinking about just the Barkley Center. Yeah. And this is something that I didn't realize until I read some more stuff about it, about how the center was like this, not just an indicator, but like the pinnacle of Brooklyn gentrification, where, you know, it was built there. It creates this bottleneck, you know, this traffic jam that didn't really exist before. Even the Nets, the Nets existence in Brooklyn was... I guess, very similar to some of the white settlers who would come through, colonizers who would come through with their $45,000 a month condos and, and, you know, $15 donuts and et cetera, et cetera. And there's an article that I read that was about Barclays and gentrification and the Nets. And it was from SB Nation back in December. And the title of the article was Why the Barclays Center is the Worst Arena in America. And I'm going to just read a paragraph. And I want your thoughts on it. Okay. The Nets move to Brooklyn mirrored a typical gentrifier's path to the city. They lived in New Jersey throughout their miserable adolescence. They came here because they thought they could remake themselves in a big city unfamiliar with them. Throw on some hip new threads, buy some new friends, and we all forget the shitty, awkward Jerseyites they once were. And appropriately, that's the very fan base the Nets would attract. Back in 2012, the easiest way to tell someone wasn't from New York was a Nets jersey or hat. Well, that's a funny um, analogy. I think when they first came to Brooklyn, I think they were like kind of, you know, the bastard child of New York tri-state area sports. Mm-hmm. The Barclays Center, when I first saw it, I was like, look at that ugly ass building, <laughs> you know? And the arena didn't feel great or warm or like cool even Mm -hmm. it just felt like big and expensive and whatnot and i think it's gotten better over the years in terms of its profile and i don't think that there are uh, as many corny people rooting for the nets (laughs) like i don't want to say that necessarily the fan base i'll say two things about it one the brothers that attend nets games are very very brooklyn right Mm -hmm. they all got the dope kicks they got the hoodies they swagged out, you know, mm-hmm. and they B-boys from Brooklyn, old, old-time old B-boys from Brooklyn. Just cool black folks that, that are in there. There's a lot, lot of black people in there. Yeah, I noticed. Yeah, I've noticed, yeah. Yeah. When I first went to a game this year, I was like, oh, look at this. this I, like, I like the vibe in here. But, you know, half the arena roots for the other team. Their fan base is not strong. Yeah, and I think that this article was more speaking to the gentrifier, like the hipster gentrifier who, you know, is synonymous with certain parts of Brooklyn, particularly like Williamsburg. Or whatever, and you know who comes to the game, you know who are not fans of the game, but are just you know this is the next cool thing to be seen at, particularly when they get KD and Kyrie. But yeah, like me, I'm a fan of basketball, so I'm going to go wherever the best basketball is being sure. played. So if I lived in Brooklyn right. while KD and Kyrie were there, I would have got season tickets. Like I would have been at every game because I am just a fan right. of good. But I'm, I'm a I'm a basketball mercenary where I do not have a team allegiance. I I'm a fan of whoever has to, <laughs> whoever my favorite players are playing for. Like I make, I make no, right. I have no shame about that. And so to your point, you know, I'm sure there are people who would attend the games who were 
just diehards who just want to see some good ball being played. Yeah, and by the way, that's not the whole of the base. And, you know, in terms of the whole gentrification, that was a big thing. Like, I remember my dad talking about it uh, specifically. You know, my father has a house, Crown Heights, Brooklyn. That's where I grew up. Where do you live now? I mean, what borough? Now I'm in Westchester. I'm out of the borough. I can't afford Brooklyn anymore, you know? And I know that's funny to hear, but it's the truth, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, my dad, I remember, because he's very much a black nationalist and you know, I was always down with the people and whatever. And he was just like, man, this is going to be a big old mess, blah, blah, blah. Ratner has no business building this thing there over the Atlantic yards. And by the way, Atlantic and Flatbush has always been busy mm. without the Barclays Center, mm. right? It's always been a like a mad traffic that going to and from there because it's a major throughway getting to Manhattan. Mm. But what they built up in Brooklyn and Fort Greene and, and downtown Brooklyn and Crown Heights and... Uh, Williamsburg, to your point, Greenpoint, uh, Bushwick. It's all gentrified. Mm-hmm. And gentrification would be cool if the stuff that was being built was for the people that lived there. Yeah, You know, the coffee shops and the yoga things and the mm-hmm. yogurt shops and whatever else. Yeah, we like we like good burgers. We like all that shit. And good okay. milkshakes and, and yoga. Goat cheese. Give me a goat cheese omelet. Man, I'm down with it. Niggas need yoga too. Niggas, niggas especially need yoga. Right. All the shit that we got to deal with. Yes. No doubt. No doubt. And so, you know, if it was being built for us, there'd not be a problem. Same thing happened in Harlem. You know, that's the that's the issue, right? Like nobody cares about it until white people do. Yeah. That's age old. Yeah, it's a similar thing happening that's happened and is currently happening in a neighborhood that I grew up in. It's a neighborhood in Pittsburgh called East Liberty. And when I grew up there in the 90s, I mean, we had like Bloods, Crips, you know, other gangs, you know, drive-bys on my street. My house got shot up mm. before. Yeah, it's, it, 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 I mean, it was crazy. I've seen people get shot and shit like that. And the thing is, I'm not, I feel like sometimes people tell these stories to like give them some sort of like blackness bona fides or whatever. Like, you know, I'm from the hood, so, you know, I'm more authentically black, but it's just, that is where I'm from. Right. You know what I mean? That's the neighborhood that I'm from. And so East Liberty right now, it's $12 milkshakes, it's $20 tacos, it's $4,000 lofts, it's Trader Joe's, Target, Whole Foods. Yep. You know, I mean, Warby Parker, Sabar. What is the relationship between gentrifying white people and curtainless windows? <laughs> because if you, go to, if you go to any of these neighborhoods... Right, that have been recently gentrified, and and the buildings all look the same. And you look up in there, and you can look straight up in there because none of them have curtains on their windows. They feel safe. It's like they're making gentrification documentaries, and they want us to witness, you know, what they're able to do, what they're able to afford, you know, the fucking William Sonoma and Pottery Bar shit that they got in their crib. And they want everyone else on the street to be able to see it. And this is, it has always fascinated me because it's, a, it's an everywhere thing. Wherever there's a recently gentrified yeah. neighborhood and you have those buildings, you will not see curtains in any of the motherfucking windows. Well, you know, you speak to what was happening in your era. Like people had to close their things. They didn't want to have people see inside the good shit that they got. Right. Because they'll get robbed. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and now these folks just feel safe. Like whatever, you know, and they got and they got cameras and ring bells and all that kind of other shit. So, you know, I've never like done any sort of robbery, but it's tempting. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's tempting when I'm walking by there and I'm, you know, and again, I'm in my I'm in my old neighborhood. I have to be honest, too. You know, I'm in a position now where, yeah, I could afford to live in some of those places, mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I couldn't always. But but now I could. Right. But to your point, it's like. Why did we have to be pushed out? Now, the $4,000 lofts, that's one thing. But we appreciate a good burger. We appreciate yoga. We appreciate Whole Foods. We appreciate walkable streets and, and community and, yep. and you know activities and fairs and all that stuff. And so it's like, well, why did this sort of investment need to happen in the community? You know, why did it have to happen at the expense of us? I mean, look, I think it's the age-old stereotypes of property values going down when, when, when Black people move into a neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. It's something that is still inherent. It's still in the fabric of the feeling around the country. Mm-hmm. And there was so much white flight that happened in the 60s or whatever, and then went to the suburbs. Now they want to move back. And so, you know, I remember when a Starbucks came on 125th Street in Harlem. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And, and my father was like, nope, that's not for us. That's for white people. And here they come. 
shifting gears a bit, but it's still kind of related to the same topic of our relationship with America and, and even with whiteness. And so I'm a big fan of your work. Thank you. I feel like Undercover Brother is the most underrated comedy that has been released in the last 30 years. Thank you. Because I feel like it's up there with the iconic comedies that have been released, but I don't know if it gets that same sort of love of like the Super Bad and the Talladega Nights and the 40 Year Old Virgin and no. Step Brothers and, and movies of that nature. But I think it's like, it's right there, right there in that class. And with The Best Man, you created characters that we've grown up with. You know, The Best Man was released when I was in college. What year was that? What, 98? 1999. 99. 99, I was in college, right? And so, what, 20, 25 years later, we still have these relationships with these characters, relationships with the actors who are playing the characters, mm -hmm. right? At this point, they are almost like family. Mm -hmm. And not just the characters, we know the archetype that the characters are based off of. Mm -hmm. And the character in particular that I'm interested in is Harper. Mm -hmm. You know, because we're both writers and Harper's a writer, mm -hmm. right? Harper's gotten hot water in the first best man for revealing some things that he did in his book. I, I got in some hot water. Well, I didn't get any hot water, but I could have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? With some of the things that I reveal in, in my memoir. Right? And so, in your series, mm -hmm. Harper has some anxiety about, you know, he's this uber successful artist, right? Yeah. You know, successful enough to be able to buy Brownstone and what was the upper, was the upper west side or lower? Upper west side. Yeah. And which... That was my one bone to pick. I'm listening. Because I don't know any authors who make that much money to be able to afford a brownstone. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, he like he must be on some Stephen King type shit. <laughs> he's making, yeah, I mean, he must be selling that many books. But he, very successful author, you know, but his books don't necessarily get the same sort of critical acclaim yeah. that he wants. Yeah. Right. And so he has some anxiety about that and ends up writing a book that wins a Pulitzer. And so... I'm wondering, I guess, what's your own relationship with your work, mm -hmm. right? And you've made this work that has that entire generation of Black people have grown up on. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in terms of like Oscar, Emmy sort of things, your work hasn't necessarily been the sort of work that gets that sort of buzz. Right. And I'm wondering right. if there were any connections with the Harper character and maybe any of your own feelings, because I'll admit that I still look to certain validations that are outside of the community. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm wondering what your relationship is with that. Well, let me, let me go back by saying when I made best man, it was largely because it was a lack of seeing people like me on screen, black people, aspirational, educated, who had all the universal hangups and desires and whatnot, your career, wanting to find love, wanting to be loved, wanting a good friend group. And so I spoke to that, right? And really my mission really has been like to keep elevating that and normalizing black life in America. Mm -hmm. Like that's been the goal, right? And black people and the culture appreciate that, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like, that's me. And not only was I showing it to a larger group, but I wanted us to feel good about ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of hood movies, a lot of like, you know, caricature-ish educated black people on screen. Either the, the, the woman is really snooty or the dude is really like, he's, you know, oh, hello, how are you? You know, you know, checking his ethnicity at the door, whatever. And that was not true and authentic to me. Um, so, you know, as I as I go further my career and you start to see, you know, the Ryan Coogler's of the world and Casey Lemons and Ava DuVernay and Jenkins, uh, Barry Jenkins. Barry Jenkins, yeah. Making these movies that be, oh my God, this is so amazing. And, da, 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 da. and by the way, the work is amazing, right? Mm -hmm. I definitely had a feeling like right after night school where I was like, God. And by the way, even before Night School, I've been wanting to tell an Oscar story, an Oscar movie, right? Like, because mm -hmm. I want I want to be in those conversations. First of all, Undercover Brother, Girls Trip, uh, other films that I've done, they're not talking about me really talking about like Judd Apatow, right? They're not talking mm -hmm. about me like Tom Shadyac or whatever. I'm like, but these movies are very funny, right? And people enjoy them. 
Yeah, really quickly, I didn't mention Girl Trip, but I had of my top three cinematic experiences in terms of going to the theater <laughs> same week. Girl's Trip. Wait, it was Girl's Trip and it was um, Get Out. Yeah. Those oh, yeah. those are my top two in terms of like. Get Out, an amazing movie. You know, first week, audience participation. Yeah. There's nothing that could replicate that experience of seeing those two movies that Friday in the theater. So anyway, go on. Jordan Peele's another one, right? Like that's a revolutionary movie. Mm-hmm. Get Out is a revolutionary movie. He says this guy killed every white person in the house and all and choked out a white woman, <laughs> right? And didn't yes. go to jail, right? Yeah. So I was always been a little bit bothered. Like, oh, why aren't I in those conversations, right? Mm-hmm. But that's because they separate us anyway. But there are some black folks that do squeak through, right? So I was like, you know what? I got to make my Oscar movie. And I tried to do that. The night school, I was like, you know what? No comedy. I'm not going to engage on the Uptown Saturday Night remake. I'm not going to do Coming to America 2. I'm going to like do this movie about the 1968 Olympics, which I've been wanting to do you know, since I was 20, since I first heard that story. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't happen. We were scouting and I was you know, rewriting the script and casting and whatnot. And it got to a place where like the movie fell apart. And I was like, damn, like I was really upset by it. A month later, I get offered Space Jam, which is a big, you couldn't get further away from, a, from an Oscar <laughs> movie, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, you know what? This is what the universe wants for me. And maybe it'll come back around again, right? Like the wanting to be validated in that way was important to me. And I think it will be again. Right now, I'm just going to be like, okay, it's going to be what it's going to be. And I'll make the product that I feel passionate about, period. Mm-hmm. And do those. Because it takes you a year of your life, at least, to make a project, right? And I think with some of the things that I do have in development that I could get there. But I look at, you know, my good friend, Gina prince Bythewood, who made The Woman King, right? Completely shut out yeah. the performances, the, the the craftsmen, the cinematography, the costumes, the direction, the writing, buckus, right from the academy, and she spoke on it, right, and she should have. But I also said to her, like, you know what? We can't expect that. we we I, she and she said in the article, we think we're gonna get something more from these institutions. We expect them to be better, and they're simply not. And it's just like you can't get too upset about it but at the same time you have to get upset you because like it's like you said we all want greater recognition that movie is on the level of like braveheart right why does braveheart resonate so much with them because it's white it's white men dark-skinned black women having their own agency and killing motherfuckers and getting away with it they're like oh, i don't i can't relate i don't i don't see what that is right and so it's sad and it's it's upsetting but we can't we have to, you know, lower our expectations. Keep aiming high for what we want, but lower our expectations for what the larger group is going to give to us. And I bring this up because in my industry with writing with books, having a great critical reception, unless you're like someone like motherfucking Tom Clancy or Stephen King or J.K. Rowling or whatever, who is just so, so big that a review is not going to... Or Tyler Perry. Or whatever, right. Or, or a review or a list is not going to mess with you. But for the majority of us, you know what I mean? Getting certain critical lods, getting on certain, you know, best of the year list, that's the sort of thing that leads to awards. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of thing that leads to bigger book deals. And it also leads to the sort of supplemental income that if you're a working writer, you're able to survive on. So you're able to command, instead of getting $4,000 per speaking of parents, you could get 10. Mm -hmm. And so if you get 10 and you do like, seven of those a year that's that's a nice really nice chunk of change i'd say so right yes this stuff like that where it has an actual tangible relationship to your to your well-being 100 to your livelihood 100 and it puts you in different conversations as well yeah so even though there is this compulsion this want the desire to be like man fuck these motherfuckers that compulsion doesn't jive with the actual physical tangible reality of the business that we're both in Yes. And, you know, I guess my point in it, you know, I, I used to feel like, oh, like what's so unfair and what I'm just like, you know what? You can't, we cannot expect anything more mm-hmm. from them. Right. Like you said, they fuck with it. They fuck with it. And it's just like, you know, and you just got to point, you, you point their sh- that shit out and be like, well, that's how y'all are. Cool. Whatever. We're going to do what we're going to keep stepping. But I guess my point of it also is if we lower our expectations, then 
we won't get hurt as much. It's still going to hurt, but like, you know, like it's mental gymnastics. It's a whole lot of like, well, why? And uh, and you start feeling bad about yourself. And it's like, you know what? No, I did the damn thing. It was cool. The fact that Tiffany Haddish didn't get nominated for a Golden Globe for her performance in Girls Trip is criminal. Criminal, right? Because Melissa McCarthy, who's fantastic, got that nomination for Bridesmaids. She deserved it, right? Because it's like, okay, you, you acknowledge comedy and how brilliant she was. Tiffany Haddish was that same person. But you know what? The Academy members did not see Girls Trip. They did not see The Woman King. They did not see it. They were like, well, you know, I don't think that's for me. I hear it's great, but I don't think I want to see that. You got to get them in the room. Yeah, That's part of it also, getting them to watch. Malcolm, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this, for coming through. I appreciate it. My pleasure. What can people looking for Malcolm Lee looking forward to in 2023? Malcolm Lee is going to sleep. going to get some rest. I've been burning a candle at both ends for the better part of three years. I want to try to like spend a little time with the family. I want to try to do a little traveling, enjoy the fruits of my labor a little bit. And also my company, Blackmail Productions, we're in a lot of, doing a lot of development and, and hopefully producing some things. Maybe a film and hopefully some television this year. But me, I'm not behind the camera. Me, by the end of the year, I will be. Or a year from now, I will be. A year from now, you will not get me on this podcast. Hey, hey, hey. You know? <laughs> All right, man. Appreciate it. No problem. Up next, Damon Hates. So I feel like if you were to just ask any random people, any random person in any city, who are the worst drivers in your city? You're going to have some city-specific people. Like, for instance, if you ask a Pittsburgher that question, they'll probably name people on Carson Street or Pitt students or CMU students or people who don't know how to drive through the tunnels, right? And again, regardless of where you're from, you're going to have that thing where you're going to have people that are brought up. Sometimes the same people. Sometimes people mention women or sometimes people get racist and mention Asians or, or whatever. But there's one population of people that is never mentioned when people talk about the worst drivers, and that's police. Police are by far the worst drivers in every city, in every community, in every county, in every state. They run red lights all the time at their whim. When they are in your vicinity, they make everyone else drive worse because you're anxious that there's a cop nearby. You know, they speed past you. They cause accidents. They cause accidents and then blame the person that they hit for causing the accident. I don't know how many people police have killed in car accidents. People who have been blamed for their own death because they got in a crash with a police officer who was speeding through a red light to catch a motherfucking shoplifter. Right. So all I'm saying is that when you think of the worst drivers, when you think of this list again, please, 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 please name the motherfucking police. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Up next, Alay Walteroth and I will enhance your life. Not fix, we ain't doing that around here. But enhance your life with our advice. Dear Damon, I'm no commitment phobe. I've been in my fair share of drive-by Vegas chapel relationships, meaning I was drunk or high the entire time, and by the end of it, I didn't know who was in bed with me. But I've been going to therapy and I stopped drinking. The excitement fueled my relationships before. Now that I found someone I'm committed to and who's committed to me without all of the turbulence disguised as excitement, I don't really know if marriage is for me. I love being in love and building a life with my partner, but I don't know if I want marriage for my life. Am I missing something or is marriage the only next step? Elaine is a journalist, author, editor, TV host. She was the editor of Teen Vogue. You can find her on TV at pretty much any time of the day. She's a judge on Project Runway. So many things that she does. Lane. Damon. What's good? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is a doozy. Who wants to tackle this first, you or me? I feel like there are two separate things here. Like there's the excitement part, which is like, what defines excitement in a relationship? And then there's a whole different question about marriage, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of like, is marriage a realistic goal for everyone? Should that be an aspiration? Mm -hmm. So maybe let's go with the first one, the excitement part. I mean, what are your thoughts about what she had to say about that? Well, first of all, I'm going to say, as a married person, marriage is not for everyone. And I also think there's a major call on all of us considering marriage to really redefine marriage for yourself. I do think that marriage needs to be redefined for everyone. It shouldn't look the same for everyone. But speaking to the excitement piece of this, let's start there. Like, okay, I have to say that a lot of times the people who make us feel the butterflies and that crazy love there's usually some chaos. Uh I think it's easy to get addicted to chaos in a relationship, uh, particularly when you're younger or when you have less experience in relationships. And like, I will admit, while I married the nicest guy ever and the guy who made me feel the safest, I definitely dated some, I dated a drug dealer. You know what I mean? Like that was my first love for five and a half years. And I understand the draw to the kind of chaotic love that's problematic and there's a lot of dysfunction. And I think it's easy to get chemically addicted to chaos in a relationship. And it's easy to mistake love. Like, it's easy to mistake toxic relationships with love. And I think it takes time to get comfortable with the idea that real, sustainable love is often, it often elicits the exact opposite chemical reaction in us. It's actually the calmest, most sane, Mm -hmm. most like, (laughs) you know, healthy kind of connection that sometimes can be confused with boredom. Yeah. So like, I think that what we have labeled love or in love is often dysfunctional, chaotic, and toxic. I mean, we could go back to, you know, our first, I don't know, our first interactions in terms of, not in terms of what we saw in front of us, but cinematically, or we're reading books or reading fairy tales. And all of those relationships were terrible. Yep. Romeo and Juliet died. 
right? You know what I mean? And their families were warring against each other. You know, Cinderella, like you just just go down a list of like these Beauty and the Beast of these like these terrible. Beauty and the Beast is really toxic. Awful relationships that were the standard. You know what I mean? It's like, you know what? This is what we need to aspire to. This is what we need to have in order to feel fulfilled, in order to be validated, in order to, you know, to have that social proof of being in love or whatever. But I'm going to pivot just a tiny bit here. Pivot. One of my favorite words. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) So my rigorous pivot Uh is that I think sometimes, though, when you have people in these circumstances who have are used to dysfunction Mm -hmm. and then they find a man, whatever, a person who is not dysfunctional Mm -hmm. and they're bored and they're thinking to themselves, you know, what's wrong with me? Why? Why doesn't this feel right? Mm -hmm. I think sometimes there is an overcorrection Mm -hmm. where you like the woman in, in this instance might be trying to force a round hole or a square peg in a round hole where maybe this guy is nice, this guy is safe, this guy is solid, but you still need attraction. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe she just think like, you know what? I've dated all the fuck boys or whatever. I've done all this. And there must be something wrong with me because I don't like this guy that much. But maybe you just don't like this guy this much. And, and I feel like that needs to be taken into account also, that possibility of that happening. Or maybe you're not done with your work. And by the way, is this a woman? Do we know that this is a woman and not a man? It is a woman in this circumstance, yeah. It's interesting because as I read this the first time, I thought it was a woman and I had a certain opinion. And then I read it again and I thought of it as a, a man and I thought, this fuck boy. One thing I will say, whether this is a man, a woman, straight, queer, otherwise, whatever they identify, what I really love about this question is the Mm self-awareness. Because there's a lot of people who end up in relationships and for whatever reason, they are resistant to long-term commitment or resistant to marriage, but they haven't done the work to even identify that there is a lack of excitement and that there is this indifference to or resistance to marriage. And this person is is literally, they're clear that they love being in love and they love building a life with their partner, but they don't know if they want marriage for their life. And that is a really, I think it takes an evolved person to be able to say out loud, I love you. I want to build a life with you. I don't know yet if marriage is for me. And I think the world would be a better place if more people had that kind of self-awareness and clarity and honest communication, both with themselves and with their partner, because it just opens up the dialogue. And I think a lot of times in relationships, the M word, like marriage, it's like a looming dark cloud for one of them. And then it's like a big elephant in the room for the other, where it's like, I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it, but I, I want them to bring it up, but I don't, you know. And I love that this question just like, it's clarifying. It's like, hey, let's talk about it. Let's put this conversation about marriage on the table and let me lead by saying, I don't know if it is for me. And I'm not dense enough to say like, this is where I'm going to stay forever. I'm actually, I want to ask the question. I'm curious, am I missing something? I also really love that they're not looking at this like through this like false binary where it's like, we either get married or we don't. It's like, is marriage the only next step? Mm -hmm. They're kind of leaving this open-ended question that invites creativity, curiosity, and this opportunity to redefine what the next step of this relationship could look like sans marriage. Yeah. Or actually could end up allowing these two people to redefine what the kind of marriage is that they would want to sign up for, whether it's with that person or not. This question speaks to like a larger cultural conversation that is happening right now where people who are married, you know, and I include myself um, as one of them, and you alluded to your own conversations about your own marriage, are really just investigating and interrogating, deconstructing just the concept of marriage. What does it mean to be married? Yes. So important. And like a question that I, we've asked ourselves is like, well, if we were the first ever married couple, what would our marriage look like? Like, what would it look like if it existed outside of, like, 
tradition or like these expectations of roles and expectations of behavior? You know, what if we just, you know, made a like a bespoke sort of marriage? Like people have bespoke relationships, but like a a relationship, a marriage that is tailored specifically to your own sensibility, your own livelihood, your own desires. That's so good. You know, how would that look? That's what every marriage should be, in my opinion, by the way. I'm curious, though, like for you, like when did you recognize that you wanted to be married? Was it when you were dating your husband and it was like, you know what, I want to marry this man? Or did you have like a, a desire to be married, to be in that sort of long-term, you know, partnership before you met him mm-hmm. or before you were with him? Well, I think to your earlier point about pop culture's influence on how we view partnership and marriage— I definitely was poisoned by the Disney princess syndrome, let's call it, where it's like some prince is going to come along and save me from my life and myself and and it's going to give me a castle. And yeah. you know what I mean? It's like there is this and it's perpetuated even by more modern day. Well, now it's still considered you know, passe or a little bit older, but like Sex in the City is what I grew up on and what inspired in, in some ways, kind of subliminally, my move to New York and the career path that I chose. And then by extension, the kind of guy that I thought I was supposed to date. I thought I was supposed to date a big, mm-hmm. you know, with a suit and a tie and a briefcase and this big money man. And they are going to give me this penthouse in the sky and build my closet. And then I can be the creative one and I can write and I can wear cute clothes <laughs> that somebody uh-huh. else paid for. And, you know, like that whole thing. And it's not something that you're super conscious of, right? But it's in there. And so I would say I dated enough guys that, really embodied those tropes that I had been, you know, conditioned to be attracted to. I had done that enough to know that actually wasn't it for me. Mm -hmm. And those relationships didn't work out. I didn't feel like myself in those dynamics. I didn't feel as powerful as I am. Um, There wasn't space for me to. And so by the time that I re-met my husband as adults because we we actually knew each other as preteens. Mm-hmm. But when we met each other as adults, like literally before him, every guy, there was this like butterfly feeling and this like excitement. This My heart was beating a little bit faster. My mouth would get a little dry. When they didn't text me back right away, I'd be like, <laughs> oh my God, do they like me still? Or what is going on? Like, uh-huh. you know, I would have these crazy visions if they were like out of reach for too long of me like wiling out. And like, it was just way more volatile in general. And then when I met my husband as an adult, he made me feel completely at ease, completely myself and completely safe. And I was mature enough and had gone through enough to know by that point that this is a feeling I actually like. And I want to feel more of this. And it gave me room to expand and blossom as a woman professionally and all in all these ways. And so I think But by that point, I was also a bit jaded by the failures of all of these relationships prior. And I remember specifically, like, so I'm the product of a long marriage. My parents are still together. They're married almost 40 years. Mm -hmm. But I've watched them go through some things that I don't necessarily want to walk through. Mm -hmm. And some things that I don't know that I would sign up for or stay through. And I was raised by parents that kind of married each other. Marriage, by my parents' definition, was a commitment to a commitment. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't sound fun to me, right? Like through all types of turbulence and trauma. And so by the time I met my, who would become my husband, I was like, listen, I'm not signing up for forever, like unconditionally. I'm not. I want us to be together as long as it's healthy and it's fun and it feels good for us. I believe that we can continue cultivating this beautiful dynamic that we have with each other forever. I believe that, but I don't know that and neither do you. So why do we have to get married? Like if it's working, let's just leave it how it is. And and I became kind of like non-committal about marriage and 
because I was more interested in just having a healthy dynamic with somebody and just like rocking with it as long as we can. You know what I mean? I didn't need to have assigned papers. If anything, all of that really scared me and I had a lot of resistance around it. So that's from that perspective, I really relate to this person's question. Like I didn't feel that marriage was necessary. And I wondered if I was missing something too, because I was a very different woman in this relationship where I wasn't pining for a ring. I wasn't wondering when he was going to pop the question. I actually told him at one point in our relationship, I love you so much, but please do not propose to me. (laughs) (laughs) I really did. And then we had to unpack that. And I, and I said, I said, I want to know, and this is the most, this is like the least romantic thing I could ever say, but I want to know that if I marry somebody that divorce is on the table and he said to me, divorce can be on the table. I love you enough to try my best to make you happy for as long as we live. If we get to a point where you are no longer happy and I know that I've tried everything and I cannot make you happy, I would let you go in love. And yo, I said to him, this is the most romantic thing Anybody (laughs) could ever say to me at this stage of my life. And in that moment, I was like, I want to marry this man. This is my, this, this one right here. I want to marry him. That, and that's a radical, I mean, that's a pretty radical, I guess, Mm -hmm. I guess, entry into marriage is to prioritize or not prioritize, but acknowledge divorce, acknowledge and divorce, not necessarily being a failure of a relationship for marriage, but just a transition. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, this isn't, it worked for what it worked. This might not be right for us anymore. So we're going to go separate. And, and, and again, I, I feel like it's the sort of thing where if a divorce is considered in that context, that means that there's a possibility of reconciliation. Like, you know what? This was a stage and now I'm in another stage and now we're maybe back together. You know, instead of looking at divorce as like this this representation of failure, mm-hmm. you know, considering it a representation of a reimagining, a representation of happiness, of the pursuit yes. of happiness and safety and care. You know, and my background, I guess, with my parents is somewhat similar. They were married, whatever, for 30-something years. My mom passed 10 years ago. My dad was a widower. And I witnessed them go through some shit. Also, like some serious like, why are y'all still together <laughs> type shit? You know what I mean? And not even like, you know, when you mentioned that, I, I feel like I have to be clear. I'm not talking about like infidelities and shit like that, or at least stuff that, I, I mean, I'm a kid, so I don't know. Right. But I'm just witnessing arguments about finances, arguments about how to raise me, right. you know, about where to live. And those are those sorts of things that can ruin a relationship too, you know. Um, but I grew up, I think, wanting to get married. And then I was in a couple of relationships. Um, and then I was single for for a minute. And this is like back in like 2011, 2012. And I was thinking to myself, you know what? I, I think I'm good. I think I'm good on marriage. Like, I'm, I think I'm good with this. I think I'm, I'm going to date. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to be free. And then I met. Well, I, I didn't meet my wife, but I fell in love with her. She was a friend. And then I found someone who I wanted to be married to. Hmm. Right. And that kind of just shifted my perspective completely. What was it about the relationship and about her that shifted your perspective and made you feel like you actually wanted to be married? Everything just felt right. Like I just, I just ultimately just felt like I could be myself. In a way, like I, I didn't feel self-consciousness. I didn't feel self-conscious. Mm-hmm. I felt free, which again is a, I feel like is a counterintuitive thing to say why, you know, you are pursuing a commitment with someone. But I felt really free, mm-hmm. you know, again, to be me. And also I wanted her to be herself too. This is becoming really romantic. <laughs> you know, we go stuck with Damon Young, travels, whatever path. Just like the marriage conversation, just like the marriage, which whichever path is available and is opens up for us, that's the path we will travel down. I mean, we started off with fuckboys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We started off with Disney 
And now mm-hmm. we're on some, you know, some romantic, reimagining, radical 22nd century, you know, understanding of what marriage, you know, what marriage, couple, what, what being coupled, mm-hmm. right? Being coupled. I love that framing. Could and should be. You know, Elaine, thank you for coming on. This has been a pleasure. You are like a multi-hyphenate <laughs> with a thousand jobs. I feel like you're one of the few people where it feels like any time of the day I turn on my TV, I can see you. <laughs> it, it, could be, it could be 11 a.m. It could be 6 p.m. I could be at the gym. I could be home. I could, I could click on like a YouTube video and see an ad that you're in. Like you are, you are everywhere right now. I mean... So we're, I, I guess, like, I usually ask people where, where can they find you, but it's like, just turn on your fucking TV. <laughs> in a random Airbnb <laughs> in New York City, across from a fire station, uh, huddled over a, a makeshift podcast setup with Damon Young. That's where you can find me. But um, no, I mean, listen, catch me in the wind. Just like you, Damon, you're Mr. Multi-Hyphenate as well. And I just love reading your work. I've been a fan of your work. I'm honored that you invited me on to your new podcast. And I hope we helped this person. I don't know. Do you think we did at all, Damon? I think so. I think I think this person is going to go away from this, just thinking that, you know, these two people who have obviously thought about this question and these concepts are basically saying like, you know what, there's nothing wrong with feeling indecisive with feeling unsure. Yeah. In fact, you should lean into that. You should lean into that feeling and don't feel like there's there's like a thing missing with you because you don't want this goal that everyone was socialized to believe that they should, that we should pursue. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that this isn't the right person for you. It might be that time will tell. Like, it might be like, you just need more time. I felt indecisive about marriage for years until I didn't. What I want to clarify is I felt indecisive about marriage with the man that I eventually married. And I felt that indecision for years. And I did not make a move towards marriage until that indecision lifted. And even when we got engaged, I waited another three and a half years to actually get married because I wanted to feel really ready for the commitment that I was going to make. And so I would say my strongest piece of advice is don't make moves when you're not at peace with the decision. Just wait. When in, Somebody once told me, when in doubt, don't. But also don't look at that as like the dead end where you're going to be stuck forever. Feelings change. Your mindset may shift. And just don't settle and don't make decisions like long-term life-changing decisions from a place of fear or indecision. Wait until you feel at peace and at ease with the decision. And even, might I add, enthusiasm. That's what I always wait for. I wait for enthusiasm because every other Mm -hmm. feeling shifts and changes and is hard to discern sometimes. It's like, is that fear? Is that anxiety? Is that doubt? But you never question when you feel enthusiastic. You know, when you can get to an enthusiastic yes, I want this. I think that's when you know you're in the right place at the right time with this decision. And um, I wouldn't move on marriage until you can get there in a sustainable way. Boom. Hopefully we helped them. I really hope we did. Boom. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to the first episode, season two of Stuck with Damon Young. I uh, want to thank uh, the homies Malcolm Lee and Elaine Walteroth again for coming through. Thank you so much to them. Um, and stay tuned for next week and then the week after that. And for 43 more weeks after that, I will be here, stuck in your head, in your dreams. Also, if you have any messes that you need help unpacking, hit me up at asdamon at crooked.com and maybe it'll make it on the show. All right, y'all. Peace. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. Our executive producers are Kendra James and Sandy Gerard. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing and sound design by Sarah Gibble-Laska. Theme music and score by Taka Yasuzawa. And special thanks, as always, 
to Charlotte Landis. And from Gimlet and Spotify, our executive producers are Crystal Halls Dressler, Lauren Silverman, Nicole Beamster Bower, and Neil Drumming. Also, special thanks to Leslie Guam.